Welcome to the AI Decision Guy podcast, the show where we explore the intriguing balance between artificial intelligence and human decision-making. I'm your host, Dr. Carlos Kemeny, and in each episode, we dive deep into the world of AI and its impact on various industries. Landon Gardner is Chief Marketing Officer at Kajit, which provides optimized IoT connectivity, software, and hardware solutions that deliver safe, reliable, and controlled internet connectivity to students, enterprises, state and local governments, and IoT solution providers. Prior to joining Kajit, Gardner served for over four years as the Senior Vice President and Chief Marketing Officer at Core, a publicly traded company focused on delivering IoT services and solutions. And before that, he had held Chief Marketing Officer roles at Tauglass, a leading enabler of digital transformation using IoT, and Ingenu, an IoT network provider that enables long-range, low-power connectivity for IoT. All right. Well, we're here with Landon today. I'm really grateful for taking time, you're taking time and, and joining us on the podcast, Landon. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for having me, Carlos. It's wonderful to connect with you again because you know we've talked a lot about your path, and you know you're a marketing guru. I, I feel like you know, as we were discussing recently, some of the exciting, interesting things that are happening around us, you know, clearly you were one of those folks that I wanted to, to bring on to talk about decision-making. And I'm excited about the work that you're doing at Kajit. I think that that would be a great place to start. Would, would you mind just diving in to what you're doing now and how you're impacting the world? Yeah, Kajit, Kajit's really kind of a a diamond in the rough, I would say it's a it's a company that was really birthed on doing good with technology. So uh, started by two two dads, right, uh, that had kids uh, that were facing those questions that now I'm facing with my own teenage kids of when do they get uh, you know technology in their hands and what what's going to be available to them. Uh, there's a lot of bad things out there and a lot of good things as well that you can uh, that can be enabled with a cell phone. And so at the time, this was 20 years ago, uh, these two fathers were kind of left in the dark in terms of how they could, you know, enable their kids to communicate, access information, et cetera. And so they started this company and Kajit uh, actually is the initials, the first initials of their ch uh, children's names, right? So Ken, Alice, et cetera. Um, and uh, as as they kind of evolved that business and they started to, you know, they, they sold cell phones effectively that were... Uh, that have a, had a mobile device management system uh, preloaded onto them. They sold them through Best Buy and Toys R Us and other places like that. They started to see, hey, this is a, this. There's actually a bigger need out there, and there's kind of this what what's referred to a lot of times in the industry as a digital divide, where um, yeah, not only are uh, you know controls not in place for for uh, technology, but additionally, just technology isn't available, and connectivity mm -hmm. and information is changing quite rapidly as it has over the last 20 years. And so the company uh, quickly got into the education space, actually, uh, and grew from there, providing technology solutions that uh, probably a lot of our own children use or take home from school with, uh, you know, a connected Chromebook or an iPad or a Wi-Fi hotspot, whatever it might be. Uh, but not just a blind internet connection or a device that can be used in all kinds of different ways. It's really you know, in a controlled way, uh, SIPA compliant DNS filtering and, and all those types of things that that allow children to 
you know, access information safely. So that that's really how their business took off. And then COVID took place and our business probably grew four or five X over the course of a few days, it seemed like. Um, and, uh, and since the company's kind of built a, a technology platform to take that same mission to new areas of business, which include, um, you know, in, into tribal communities, for example, we build private networks for, uh, for some of the tribal communities across the country. We uh, enable private networks in um, higher education as well, where we provide a neutral host platform. Uh, we, we even get into healthcare where we're providing connected uh, managed services for remote patient monitoring, medical device companies, et cetera. So that mission's kind of gone beyond just children, of course, um, but uh, we, we really believe in you know, pro providing connected technology um, for use cases that can do good more than just provide provide revenue and profit. I think this is really important, certainly for the development of children. I think that, you know, maybe focusing on that aspect first, because I love the mission, but I also feel like, you know, this is a really good model for how we develop our decision-making. I think part of this filtered kind of view of the world that, you know, I, I was at my son's school and they take a very deliberate approach to this, but it's about development, you know, from early age K through four, that there's some technology that's entrusted to them, but not a lot. And then five through eight, there's a little bit more. And then nine through 12, there's a lot of autonomy. Yep. And part of that is to provide some kind of pathway for uh, experiencing. And, and part of the reason what attracts me a lot to this is because the brain is developed only so much at each of these stages. And so there's this, certainly an environment where it's going to be open. And in fact, as a parent, you need to prepare for that. And so, you know, not to get too much in the parenting side of things, I do think it's important as we evaluate the impact of, uh, of AI on society to make deliberate decisions along each of these developmental stages for children or in these types of environments. And I think this is what's appealing in some ways about you know, AI is that you can kind of help and guide through that uh, developmental piece, but that deliberate decision still needs to be made. And so do you, do you mind commenting a little bit about this mission? Because it's a, it's, a, it's a strong mission, but also how it connects to this future of educating children to make decisions, not just to live in a boundary, you know, environment of filtered content. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. You know, it's, uh, I'm trying to think of an analogy on the spot here, but really I think you touch on such an interesting point, Carlos, and that's around this idea of give, giving children as they grow up just enough, right. Enough to, enough to learn, develop and move to the next level, the next stage. Right. And we do that a lot in, in just how we educate our children, right. We're not going to go and, and hit them with an algebra textbook at, uh, you know, in second grade, necessarily, we, we work our way up to that to get them to the point where they can do calculus and, and uh, more complicated math systems, right? Um, the same way we, we should probably think about from a technology and information standpoint. And the other thing that you bring up that's a really important point is as, as AI becomes more and more, I'd say, influential on the decisions we make, on the, on the information that we gather, um, you know, it can be easy, I guess, to, you know, outsource the decision making, I guess, even in a child's life to a system. And that can be pretty dangerous just on on the development of somebody's intellect on their uh, on their character itself. Right. And so 
I think there is this balance and it's not a black or white. It's a, it's very much kind of a gradual spectrum of development. I think when it comes to enabling, um, whether it's education or whatever it might be, especially with children. Um, so it's, it's a fascinating, um, I think, uh, uh, discussion. I mean, we're in education, of course, and we hear educators all the time, school districts come back and say like, block, you know, take, take these, uh, Wi-Fi, um, hotspots that you're putting in people's homes or the Chromebooks and iPads that they're taking home with them to do homework. And please block chat GPT and block, you know, all these, all these AI tools because they're taking the decision-making, the creativity away from our students. And I, there's another side to that story, of course, but I think, um, you know, on, on the other hand, they're becoming much more creative because, you know, they can use a lot more uh, information in very unique ways and, and create things that haven't been created before. But uh, neither way, I don't think is right. Right. I mean, it's they're right in degrees. And so I think um, that's where I think that's where the really interesting intersection of of the human and the and, and AI kind of come together. It's, it's fascinating. Right. I, I mean, I think that, you know, as you, as you were talking, I think that the idea of rule setting, you know, certainly a lot of the things that we do, maybe we, we set some boundaries or rules and maybe that's predicted by past behaviors that's, you know, manually uh, provided to us to set those rules. Um, but then AI then takes available data and then starts making some connections. And I think certainly in the educational, you know, realm, the challenge that we have with the ChatGPT may be that we view it to now you know, take away all the work and all this foundational knowledge. I think there's a great opportunity, though, in these types of um, landscapes like you're talking about right now, which is, yeah, if you as an educator could establish uh, an assignment, not as a way to, you know, test GPT's ability to summarize a you know, text, which is very simple and one can turn in a report, but rather to verify information, um, you know, on a scale of zero to 10, verify the truthfulness of that sentence one by one. Mm -hmm. Isn't that an incredible opportunity for an educator yeah. today and age? Isn't that higher order critical thinking that is actually beyond a lot of us uh, and we're not trained to do? Yeah, hundred percent. And there's so, that's, that's just one small example where you're right, Carlos, but when you when you really train somebody with the these tools and allow them to be the leader of them versus the other way around right and you can do that as an educator right um and that's why i think the education space just is so um you know it's un underserved for sure but we we need smart people in you know in k through 12 right we need them in preschools because it's those people that are going to design the types of questions like you just asked that will allow our students and our own children to, you know, take these tools and actually, you know, um, develop their brains with them. Right. So fascinating stuff for sure. Well, you have a distinguished career in marketing. You've been in this world of information and communicating information to people and to influence behavior and action. And I think that, you know, with that, I wanted to dig into some of the challenges with decision-making and information, you know, connecting the, the lines to what we were talking about in the educational space, but now to a little bit of this, you know, the disinformation, misinformation world and applying that, you know, ultimately one of the concerns I think for a lot is how do you distinguish truth versus uh, um, lies with information? Let's say that you have a bulk of information on the web 
that says one thing and truth is another. And now how do you do that? And you know, what are your thoughts on this and overcoming this massive challenge? And I don't think, um, you know, in the next 20 minutes, we're going to solve this issue. But I think that certainly this is a, a, an area that is concerning to a lot of people. Yeah, for sure. Right. And I think um, early in my career, um, right, I, I was exposed to a lot of at the time, I mean, a, a, and still today, a big part of our marketing is around um, search engine optimization. I'd kind of go back to that example, because really, how do you determine, you know, what's true and what's false? And really, the the internet or, or, or search engines would say it's based on probably domain authority, right? And so, there's obviously different different algorithms that kind of look at that in different ways. And so, but really if whoever it is, the Wall Street Journal or CNN or whoever it might be, states something to be true, the internet believes that that is true, whether it is or not, right? And, and thus you're in marketing anyway, your, you know, your results that you're looking for are pretty much tied to, you know, that, that level of authority, which is really interesting thing to think about. So you're always striving to, you know, get in front of those reporters at, uh, you know, the New York Times or uh, LA Times or wherever it might be to have your story be heard, right? And I've been in the wireless industry for, for uh, a little more than a decade now. And there's a lot of noise in that space and it changes quite a bit. Um, and it's it's a very dynamic space with, with networks changing. Again, I think recently you see a lot of like commotion around 5G, of course, and there's tons of misinformation on 5G. And there's tons of really great information on it as well from people that think that it's, you know, some government agency that's trying to spy into our lives and create cancer for everybody to people that think it's going to enable, you know, surgery across the globe for, for, for somebody. Right. So, and the truth of it is, is like, you know, it's a spectrum, right? I, I don't think that uh, 5G is going to destroy our world, but we need to really be, um, uh, that's that's where critical thinking, like you say, and that's where kind of um, a strong basis of education that allows us to go through and assess truth and understand what's what, um, coupled with that domain authority, right, that, that organizations develop over time, has to be mixed together. Otherwise, if you blindly rely on, you know, you know, you've seen these these circles in in some of the AI outputs, right, that have come out recently that, you know, um, what what it thinks to be true isn't true. And we need to we need to have our own independent thinking about that to, to judge whether whether something is true or not and, and have, you know, people that we trust around us as well to help us understand those things. How do you do that in an organization? I mean, you've led plenty of organizations, uh, you know, leading many teams. How do you deliberately educate a workforce? Um, how do you build this critical thinking skill, particularly because, you know, there's different levels of, of, uh, of players in an organization and the path of least resistance would certainly be to lean on the automated decision, right? There's, there's, uh, uh, less risk sometimes when you have established technologies that you lean on. So how do you reward? How do you build? How do you develop? How do you nurture? Yeah, that's uh, a good question. I don't know that like uh, it's a that's a nut that I still try to crack for sure, right? Like I don't know that I've uh, figured that out completely. But I think first off, and it's going to sound a little probably soft, but 
I think first off, I would say anytime you work with a team, right, it's, it starts with a relationship. Um, and so when you, when you have relationships, trust typically follows within those relationships in healthy relationships anyway. And so, um, in the teams that I've kind of led specifically in marketing is we've tried to build, build a brand and build a story and, and help that story hit the market in a way that is compelling and motivates people to action. I think it all, all comes back in my case to building relationships. And so, um, uh, helping somebody understand on my team, first of all, what our mission is, what our purpose is and how, you know, we develop kind of a, what I call a message architecture that supports that mission. Right. And that would include your feature benefit support points, all those types of things. Um, but then as it gets beyond that, right, you're still telling a story, right? Your brand is just a representation of that story. So your product then becomes another representation of that brand, et cetera, et cetera. And so at each point in that equation, trust shouldn't leave the room, right? Like it's a, it's so critical to have that. And so that trust, I think, comes best when there's a relationship in place. Uh, And of course, to to make a decision at the end of the day, um, yeah, there's there's amazing systems and amazing pieces of data out there uh, that allow you to, to, to make those decisions or be more informed about a decision. But um, I think it's, it comes down to connecting with people. And so that connection could come through, through many ways with my own team, for example, you know, it's, it's frequency of, of discussing really, you know, uh, complex things. Sometimes, sometimes it's just about, um, talking with somebody about how, what they think about or what they believe in, um, as that gets out beyond kind of your corporate doors and that, that gets it into a product that might be, uh, um, opened up to a market, uh, it, it still comes down to trust at the end of the day. And how do you communicate that trust that, Hey, what you're saying is true. And that needs to be backed up by, in our case, a lot of technical specifications and, and that type of thing, but it also needs to be backed up by, uh, you know, customers. And so we rely heavily on, um, you know, a lot of our customers today, for example, we, like I mentioned, we, we build private networks as one of our products into, uh, uh, tribal communities across the country. Um, Apache Nation happens to be one of our customers. And so when we go in, we talk to a, you know, a friend of the Apache Nation, uh, we bring that up a lot and they can go and talk to them. And so our marketing effort kind of feeds itself over time. So, you know, when you do business with uh, one auto, uh, automotive OEM, another automotive OEM, you know, notices that they, they have relationships there. And again, that trust says, okay, they do business with Audi. Therefore they probably, you know, would, would do well to serve me at general motors or wherever that might be. Um, and so those, those types of things start to stack on top of each other. And I think that's how you build a brand. Right. So, um, but it really starts at a fundamental level, like everything does, I think with basic relationships, right. And doing what you say you're going to do, um, and, uh, and being loyal to, to whoever that audience or whoever that stakeholder might be. Can you trust AI? <laughs> That's a great question, right? Um, so I think, I think you, you've got to understand the sources of AI at the end of the day, right? I think it, it, uh, we've looked at AI in, in different ways in our own business, right? Like, so how can we take some of the amazing tools to be able to say, like in our case, 
We've got a data platform that takes in all kinds of data from students, for example, all over the country. Uh, and, you know, if a, if a teacher, for example, Carlos wants to say, hey, um, we've got to test our, my, my children and it's the end of school year, at least here, here where I live. I want to know, did they come prepared for this test that they're going to take this afternoon? In a very natural kind of language, they could say, hey, did my students study for an exam, right? And the answer that they might get out of that system within our own platform would be, yeah, 76% of the students spent at least 30 minutes studying the exam, right? And they could validate that with data. Now, how, how much do you trust the data, right? At the end of the day, do I, do I trust that the AI that kind of analyzed that data is telling me the truth? Probably, right? Like there's, um, there's, there's history there. There's, there's other experiences that I've had that validate that. Um, but you have to understand, like, I think the underlying data, and I think that's where, that's where you get in trouble is when you don't probably validate that or the data size may not be significant enough. Or if I say, Hey, it looks like Jimmy didn't study. Therefore the 26 other students in my class didn't study either. Um, those are the conclusions you, you get to where you, you start to make bad decisions, right? In your experience, data, how well prepared is data in most organizations to make decisions from that can be trusted and how much effort does it take to manage that data? Oh man. Um, first off, no, right? Like I, I, I hate to be a negative about that, but, um, we we're in the business of collecting data, right? Our business isn't necessarily analyzing data. We, we, um, or we call ourselves an IOT connectivity, um, um, provider. And so, you know, you put sensors out into a field, they might measure the moisture in the soil, right? And you can measure all kinds of stuff, humidity, temperature, um, you know, uh, sunlight, whatever it might be, right? In that sing single sensor. And that data can be passed every millisecond, second, whatever you want it to be, or every day, right? And so the, the enormous amount, amounts of data that you can pull through a network are just mind blowing. And as you go from 4G to 5G networks and beyond, it just becomes more and more, you know, when you put cameras out there and you start to analyze movements and things like that. I mean, you could, yeah, you, you can do all kinds of different things with that data. But to your question, I think, Carlos, is um, how do you actually make use of that data? And is it is it very useful? Uh, I would probably say it's not right. Like we, we haven't gotten to a point where we can actually derive, um, you know, actionable decisions from a lot of the data that we get. And I think that's really the opportunity that's out there right now is so many things that happen in this world are being, you know, data from those, those actions and those events are being, are being captured, but they're not necessarily being acted upon or, they're taking place within a silo, right? And not being looked at in a correlated manner. And I think that's super interesting, kind of what you're doing in your space, Carlos, in terms of, you know, allowing to allowing people to build, you know, uh, you know, connections into that data, which is which which just opens up the possibilities of of making better decisions at the end of the day. Well, thank you. I mean, I think as I have pondered many many uh, nights, sleepless nights, <laughs> of the state of data, I am concerned about the noise that we introduce 
based on the theory that, gee, get all your data into the warehouse. And certainly in IoT, you need to get a lot of data. There's a lot of opportunities for data. But let's talk about the effort to value and the cleanliness to value of each of that data. Each data point um, needs to have some attachment to some uh, validation gateway. And the trust then is instilled based on not only whether or not the data is coming in and once it's, and that it's been trusted at one point in time, but this is the challenge with real-time data is that it also needs validation over time. Things can go out of, uh, uh, you know, trust, uh, uh, you know, you can lose trust in data over time, right? There's uh, ways for that data to degrade. So what are the best ways to do this? What's the best way to build a system of trust? And in addition, given that oftentimes the resources are limited and the more information that you bring in, you've already been, you've already inherited a situation where it's almost impossible with resources to validate every single point. And so, of course, we come up with exception-based reporting. We look for anomalies, outliers. But there still needs to be some validation to the real world, especially, especially in the IoT world. How do you approach this idea of golden data then at that point? How do you select data that needs to be trusted and then establish good guardrails around the continuous uh, data quality around that so that decisions can be made and trusted? And then I guess as an extension of that, how quickly do you lose trust when the data is gone, right, yeah, uh, in well, terms for, of quality? For sure, real fast, right? For sure. Um, we, we deal, like I mentioned, with the, the healthcare space to some extent with medical devices. Some, you know, are, are critically um, important to people's lives in some cases, you know, indicators of, of, of life and death sometimes. Um, and yeah, the, the wrong the wrong measurement, the wrong data feed, the wrong whatever, right, could, could lead to somebody's death or at least the perception of death in some cases, unfortunately, right? And so it, it's it's serious stuff. Um, I don't know that I have the, uh, uh, probably the best answer for you, but we, what we do um, is I think there are um, there are benchmarks, I think, within certain segments and in, in verticals that we look at um, that uh, that give us a pretty good indication of whether we're way out in left field or whether we're pretty close on or whether there's, like you say, some type of anomaly or exception that takes place. And so um, Fortunately, we've been we've been able to gather a lot of data. I mean, um, especially over COVID during COVID, we were you know generating just enormous amounts of data through our network, um, uh, and and so over time we're able to take that data and of course with with uh, um, you know cloud computing and edge computing and things like that, we're able to make some assumptions before that data all just makes it back into some dirty data warehouse and. You got to sift through it, and so there's there's a lot of really interesting things that I think are taking place on the edge right now, that allow you to um, filter some of that data through your network back to a place where it can be analyzed and be kind of cleansed. Um, so it makes it less less dirty for sure um, uh, from that standpoint. Um, but but for us, I think it just comes with time, right? Like there. There is um, a lot of value in, you know, just data over time. And so we're able to see, fortunately, we've been in some of the industries and verticals that we've been in for quite a while, 
to say, hey, this doesn't look or sound right. And it comes down to human intervention sometimes, unfortunately, but it's based on automated systems that allow us to see that data in a, you know, not a one-to-one manner and a one-to-many manner. Um, and, and honestly, the people that we continue to hire are just getting smarter and smarter and smarter. And so um, the solutions that they're coming up with, you know, are 10 times as fast as they were five years ago. Right. And so I think we're getting better just as a, uh, from a talent uh, pool to be able to understand some of these trends, understand some of the structure of the data and to put it into places where, you know, it makes more of an impact more quickly or we can react to it quicker. Um, but it's a, it's a fascinating kind of uh, place to play. Cause yeah, we could just inundate our, where our data warehouses with just, you know, unfiltered, data for days right and uh it wouldn't do us any good for sure what about what about the consumer how has consumer decision making changed how will ai influence how you market to end consumers oh yeah um fascinating i think um it's a two-edged sword for sure on that front right i think you get the whole uh i've got a good friend that is a uh, ER doctor right here that lives nearby. And, and I, I meet with him from time to time and he complains his biggest frustration is that everybody that comes in since WebMD was invented is that they're now a doctor. And so what he sees when they come in is, you know, they've already, they already have the answer. They already have the treatment that they need. Whereas, you know, it might be a completely different problem. And so his biggest frustration is every single time you know, uh, he gets a patient in the ER, they have, you know, they've already got the diagnosis down and he's got to convince them that it's not that or it's, it's some, some other thing. And so I think there's a little bit of that now where, you know, so much data is accessible to our, our consumers, our, our customers, and just the public in general, that, um, you know, sometimes we become our own little WebMDs for whatever vertical or industry that we're in. And our consumers are at the end, end of the day, I think more informed for sure, right? They come in and they know like when we sell a, a, a product or service that we offer, 10 years ago, we were doing a lot more educating, right? We were explaining the benefits of, you know, 2G versus, or 3G versus 2G networks and this module versus that radio module. And I think behavioral, you know, the behavioral discussion, I think is just uh, been upgraded over the past, you know, even few months. Right. So people now come to the table with much more deep, you know, questions and we've got to be more informed. Right. Um, um, because they are, they are definitely more informed. Yeah. I think that, you know, when you're talking about the, I would call it the visibility and the transparency, I envision that it will lead to the rise of consumer aid aided, uh, techniques so that as those that are selling or providing service uh, product to and consumers, that there's some visibility now into the data itself. Whereas today, it's a little bit behind a black box. It is. And so now you talk about, okay, the importance of these things. For example, in the doctor example that you gave, how effective would it be to have these five questions that are asked and the answers are yes, yes, no, no, no. And it basically shows that that is a wrong diagnosis mm -hmm. and that aids the process. So that changes from, let's say, the, uh, a patient who's going for the first time 
and may not trust the doctor because they have self-diagnosed and now there's this education and there causes some friction versus somebody who's been there for 20 years and says, oh, I'll defer. And so how do you mitigate that? And so there's this, it goes back to truth and trust, all of this, it's all entangled. How do you see this plays out in the next five years? So, you know, we have AI that's coming through. ChatGPT gave this big push towards the possibilities of AI um, to the common lay person. Um, You don't need to know AI technically to understand some of the benefits it can reap now. But how do we see, you know, the next five years, what are the demands of consumers for purchasing products? How does this influence anybody with a product that they're trying to sell uh, in terms of the needs of, uh, of, you know, building that trust? And yeah, comment a little bit about that. Yeah, I think it's going to transform the the, uh, consumer's experience in ways like we saw with, you know, e-commerce, right? I really do. I think, you know, we move from, you know, do do I really want to buy something online? I don't know if I trust this website to now, geez, you buy pretty much every, like, at least in my house, you know, almost, I'd say probably 90% of things other than some fresh food get purchased online, right? And you see the demise of shopping malls and things like that. I think, I think it's going to be similar to that in a lot of ways um, from, a, from a market standpoint. Um, what that looks like exactly, I don't, I don't know. Um, but I do know in, in our industry, I think it is going to be much more of a, we, we have to provide better information to, uh, to feed that system. Right. And, and we've got to be much more, we've got to change the way we think about positioning and, and in my, in my case, marketing, right. We've got to think about how do we market to, you know, an AI engine in, in some cases, and how do we provide the right kind of decision-making process? Like your example with, yeah, if they answer these five questions in this sequence, I know that they're going to, I know that this is likely to be the outcome for us, right? If they come, you know, in our business, if they come and they answer those, these five questions, right? I know that they're probably going to be this type of consumer and therefore they're going to want these types of things. We've seen that with just our, we've, we've started to implement this with things like just the digital experience overall, where we get a really diverse set of folks that come to a place like our website. Um, and so, you know, somebody that's coming to our website that might be a principal of a school or a superintendent is much, much different than, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, somebody that's working at a major medical device OEM, right. That's building a, you know, a continuous glucose monitoring product, right. They're looking for very, very different things. And so we've got to cater that experience to, you know, those audiences and we've got to do it in real time. So they don't come to our our brand and say, Hey, I'm an educator and it's showing me all kinds of healthcare stuff. Like that's, that's not me. That's not my, that's not who I'm after. So from a marketing standpoint, that's kind of what, what my team tries to focus on is how do, how do I identify those personas really well? And then how do we effectively ask those five questions, even though they may not be questions, you can do that in a lot of different ways, whether that's, you know, um, you know, cookie data or whether it's an actual series of questions or a chat feature or something like that. Um, but I think that personalized digital experience is 100% where we're going and it's going to transform the way we, the way we make decisions, the way we consume information, just in the same way that Amazon, you know, converted us all to, to a digital buying experience. 
Thank you, Lynn. And what a, what a great discussion today. I mean, I think that the future of marketing, the fu future of technology and the integration of AI, certainly we know that uh, decision-making is uh, the way that we make decisions is changing. I appreciate the thoughts about uh, how it's going to play out and, and, and what we need to consider. So thank you for, for joining us on the show today. It's been a great discussion. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks, Carlos. Thank you for joining us on the AI Decision Guy podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review our show. And be sure to tune in to our future episodes as we continue to explore the ever-evolving landscape of AI and its impact on decision-making. Until next time.